welcome back to In the Booth, a podcast by the Frederick News Post. My name is Jillian Atelsuk, and I cover education. As you may know, in this series, we are sitting down with each of the 16 candidates for the Frederick County Board of Education. It's a really crowded field, there's been a lot of money spent on the race so far, and we thought it was important to ask each candidate about the most pressing issues facing Frederick County Public Schools. Today we have Karen Yoho, the first of two incumbents in this year's race. Karen told me about what inspired her to run for the board back in 2018, what she's learned since then, and what she might hope to change or improve if she was given another term. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Make sure to check back for more over these next couple weeks. And don't forget, primary elections are July 19th, and early voting begins July 7th. Thank you for listening. So today we have Karen Yoho. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So for voters who might not be familiar with you, can you just kind of introduce yourself, tell us where you live in the county and and what kind of public office you've held before? Okay. I live on the Frederick County side of Mount Airy, and uh, we moved there, Monrovia, Mount Airy, when my son was born in 1981 and had two other children. Um, And uh, then I uh, ran for school board four years ago when I retired from teaching. Okay. How long were you a teacher and where'd you teach? I was a teacher in the county for 25 years. I started at Twin Ridge Elementary, uh, went to Tuscarora Elementary, Oakdale Elementary, and then finished out at Twin Ridge Elementary. Okay. What what grades did you teach? I taught every grade except elementary grade except kindergarten. Okay. I also did some intervention, so I worked with uh, kindergartners first, second grade, but Mm -hmm. all grades, all elementary grades. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about what made you decide to run for this position in the first place, and then separately, what made you decide to run again this cycle? I'm an unusual elementary teacher that liked politics. Most of the people that like politics are secondary social studies teachers that I've met, but um, I always had uh, just this interest in you know, how politics worked. And so when I became a teacher and joined FCTA, the Teachers Association, I got on the Government Relations Committee, and I was often involved in the endorsement process, in the interviews, did that for more than a decade, maybe two. And uh, then near the end of my career, I told my husband, I said, someday I'm going to run for school board. And I just uh, felt like the, the voice of the teacher needed to be there. I knew often, a lot of times what the school board does does not necessarily trickle down immediately to the teachers. We're not their immediate boss. But when the school board makes decisions that rattle everybody's cages, you know, it's just not good for the, the teachers and therefore not for the students. So I wanted to be there to kind of protect the teachers and make sure that we always kept them in mind, the school-based staff, and, and because it's always about the students. And so what you do with the teachers and the school-based staff will directly affect the students. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things were on your mind when you were weighing whether to run again this, this year or whether to call it a rest? Like yeah. what, what, what kind of things do you see as most important this time around? Or what are your priorities? Yeah, that is a great question. I did a lot of uh, thinking all through uh, last year because at one point, you know, basically everybody was mad at us and uh, it's like, whoo, I don't have any base left. And, um, you know, people are forgiving and, and they understand that COVID 
Nobody signed up to to have a leadership position during COVID. You know, you run for school board and you think redistricting is the worst you're going to have to go through. And we did okay with that or we have a good process. Um, so, you know, as time went and I talked to people and I realized, okay, teachers are still talking to me. It's going to be okay. And you could explain to the public and, and everybody just knew it was difficult. But there are a lot of raw feelings and there are obviously... 16 candidates, because people had a lot of emotion tied up in what happened during COVID. So I weighed that a lot and um, decided to go ahead and run again. I, I love it. I absolutely love being on the board. Um, you know, again, COVID wasn't so much fun. But now that we're back to, I mean, we just spent the week at graduations and there's just so much good that goes on, and I, I'm going to the retirement uh, ceremony for staff retiring today, and I, I just, I love every bit of it, and um, I think I bring, again, still that teacher perspective, and I still have a lot of contacts with um, a lot of people that are teaching. Okay. Do you have any particular issues or initiatives that you see as kind of the most important or top of your priority list going into this next term that you're seeking? Yes, you know, of course, that's 101 candidate. But um, yeah, we've come to see and, and the current board has really put a lot of focus on staff salaries. Um, the blueprint has us focus on a very narrow definition of teacher. And so we're, we were trying to expand that we upped minimum pay to $15. I mean, we have to have a livable wage, livable wage for our um, staff or, or we're not going to keep them. There's too much competition out there. Um, and so that's definitely one. We've talked forever about expanding the Career Tech Center. I don't know anybody that's against that, but you can talk all day. We need to do something. And, uh, you know, I've got some ideas going forward that I'd, I'd really like to, now that hopefully, fingers crossed, COVID's behind us. I, and I don't expect that it might not flare up, but I think we're going to learn to live with it. Um, but as our major issue of dealing with, maybe we can start focusing some real resources and time on how can we expand the Career Tech Center. We just have too many students that, that don't get in, and it's just such a wonderful program. Um, and gosh, um, I, well, workload, workload for teachers. You know, that's always, always an issue. I would love to say class size, but that's money. So you have to kind of decide, are we going to put it to salaries or are we going to put it to class size? Because that's hiring more staff. And I'd like to see the two-prong approach, but, um, you know, is the money there to do that? Mm. Okay. So if you were reelected, you'd be serving alongside the first new superintendent that FCPS has had in a really long time. And I'm wondering how you would plan to work with Dr. Dyson and what, if anything, you think you and the board and, and the new leadership of FCPS could change or do differently um, as the district sort of enters this new chapter. Well, I was fortunate to be on the board that hired Dr. Dyson. And I believe this has been said publicly already, so I'm not divulging any, um, you know, thing that I shouldn't. Um, we just said, wow, after her. Uh, interview was over. Um, she impressed us with specific knowledge, with plans, with her focus on students, um, her professionalism, her ties to Frederick County. What impressed me when we went through all of the interviews was from outside Frederick County schools and Frederick County itself has a really good reputation. 
and um, people wanted to come here. So that was really refreshing. Uh, so again, was uh, lucky enough to be one of the people that um, avidly and, and um, you know, was happy to, to hire Dr. D Dyson. Um, and so looking forward, one of the things that she talked about in her interview was taking time to see what's working and what's not working. I appreciated that because, again, it goes back to let's not pull the rug out from under our staff. Let's not, you know, change things um, drastically. Let, and, and if you don't know what needs to be changed, why are you going to change it? Um, I believe she's um, given indication to, with talking to Brad Young, that she's going to work well with uh, Dr. Marco, who has done an absolute marvelous job. Um, I would like to see him be turned loose on the special ed situation. They don't mean to make that sound like crazy. Walk. He's got some wonderful ideas, and that's his background. Um, I think she would be... Um, you know, wise to tap into that. I do believe she's wise. So, you know, that's a big priority area for our board and for the school system. Um, so I think that would be good. Communication, it always comes back to communication. And we've known for a while that that's something that needed to be worked on. So um, our our public affairs office is really getting in good shape now. Um, Dr. Uh, Lewis Phillips is just you know, I, I find him masterful. He's got that soothing voice. He's got the various experiences, so he knows how to um, relate to various audiences. And they're building up. Um, they're getting more staff. Stable. We've had turnover in, in public affairs. So once we get people that can be there, know what they're doing, um, have plans, and they do. I sat down with them recently uh, after taking a Board of Ed um, in service about crisis communication, and I talked to them about what they have and maybe what the board could do. Um, so those are some of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, with the new superintendent. <clears throat> Sorry. No, no uh, Allergies uh, popping up there. Um, yeah. You know, communication and working on special ed, and then making our staff feel like they're listened to. Okay. Well, you mentioned the special ed situation, and that was actually my next question. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the DOJ investigation. Um, since you're a sitting board member, you know, I'm asking every candidate how they would continue to navigate this situation as it evolves and the continued impacts of everything that was unveiled there. Um, so I want to hear from you on that too, but I also want to hear from you um, about what your reactions were as a board member when, when all of this came to light and just how you would plan to continue navigating that, like I said, moving forward. You know, sometimes I look back on little little inklings we should have had, but, you know, we, we have people on our board that live for special ed. That is their focus, and, you know, Brad Young's been in there 12 years, and I was on CCAC, Special Ed Citizens Advisory Committee, my first year on the board as the liaison, and I don't remember really picking up on things. When, when we did hear seclusion and restraint, as I've said publicly, those are tech, you know, techniques that were used uh, legally. They're in IEPs. And so it didn't put up the red flag. The, the sirens didn't start going off until the DOJ um, ruling came out. And so we were, we were really caught off guard, and people don't always believe that, and, and I'm sorry for that, but we, we, 
to think that not one of us would have done something um, it is just not realistic. There are board members that definitely, if not myself, would have been screaming from the highest mountains. Um, <clears throat> so how do we not know? That's that's a whole <laughs> other uh, question to delve into, I and, and it's a good one to delve into. It goes to that communication, which we've you know, made clear with the, the new superintendent and with Dr. Marco that we very much wanted to be communicated with. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, so we have to listen to the DOJ. We want to listen to the DOJ. I would love for the DOJ, somebody from the DOJ, to actually come to Frederick County because they never have visited. All their interviews were done through Zoom or Google or, or whatever, remotely. Um, and I would love for them to come out and actually, you know, uh, observe and then be able to give really specific um, recommendations. So right now I feel like their recommendations are, are, are they're fine and they're good, and it's where they're going nationally. You know, the, I think there are about 90 lawsuits right now through the DOJ nationally. Um, but I'd like some more specific, and we're doing that ourselves. Dr. Marco did a listening tour Staff is being retrained, um, so a, a lot of things are, are hopefully happening. Um, I've sat down with some parents. A number of board members have sat down, you know, with specific parents to hear their perspective and their, what their child's experience was, and uh, it's you know it's heartbreaking. But I also listen to staff, and they need training, they need resources, they need more people. So um, all of that has to happen. Yeah, you mentioned the communication piece at the beginning, and you mm -hmm. seemed, seemed like there was more you wanted to say there. So I just kind of want to go back um, when you were saying, how did we not know? That's a separate question. Um, are you just saying that Dr. Albin should have informed the board sooner or that um, someone should have stepped in and made this clearer to you guys before it came out publicly? I'm just curious what, what you meant by that. Yes, that um, somebody should have made us aware um, because the decision was done by the time it came to us. And so we, we had no say in it. And, um, and then again, people think we knew and should have done something, but, you know, we, we weren't aware. And, uh, I, I think it's changed the way some people are, are going to be involved as board members is, is now we need trust as well. Are you going to keep us informed of what's happening? So, um, but yeah, that that's the bottom line. Somebody should have told us so that we could we could be prepared. We could make a statement. We could get involved. And um, you know, we're, again, we now have this settlement that has to always be um, built into the budget, and we got no say going in. So, um. mm -hmm. and if I'm remembering correctly, I think there was maybe one sentence about it in sort of a quarterly legal update. Can you just mm -hmm. remind listeners? How, the extent of whatever you were informed of before the December 1st announcement from the DOJ? Yes, you're absolutely absolutely right. It was about a one-sentence um, statement. in, And as you said, um, we get quarterly legal updates. And they're very sort of nebulous on purpose because names are redacted. Um, it's We're not we're not supposed to know the specific information about particular students for their privacy. It's more just to keep us aware of what is going on and what the resolution of. And so it was a one-sentence statement about um, ongoing DOJ 
investigation into restraint and seclusion. And as I said, that didn't send up red flags because those at the time, now legislation is changing in Annapolis, but those were legal. They were in students' IEPs. So it just didn't send up the red flags. And the entire, all seven of us got that. And again, nobody went, hey, what's going on here? We waited to be informed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about something else that has been um, pretty prominent in community discussions, um, not so much these last few weeks, but definitely in recent months, which is the family life and human sexuality curriculum. Uh, I just want to get a sense of where you stand on this sort of debate that we've seen between the school system and, and most of the board members who say that this is going to be age appropriate and it's going to help make the curriculum more inclusive. Um, versus folks who are saying that there's no way to make this age appropriate, that it's an infringement on religious freedoms, all kinds of other arguments. Um, Just curious what you think about that and about what you think about how the discussion around it has kind of played out in in the community at meetings and that kind of thing. And this is maybe where my experience as a teacher with curriculum worked against me. I saw that and didn't think the word, you know, some of the wording in it, would kind of make you sit up, but I knew the wording in, in, in the curriculum, things like gender and, you know, just the, the things, sexuality, um, in kindergarten, that, that could be disturbing. But, you know, I, I taught, um, personal body safety to third graders for more than a decade, um, in the 90s and early 2000s. And in that curriculum for third graders, you teach about sexual and physical abuse and neglect. But those words are not used. You never use the word sexual abuse. You don't get into body parts. And so, you know, it's like your, your private parts are what are covered by a swimsuit. That's how it was done age appropriately. And, and the more adult words were never brought into it. And, and so I knew in looking at it, those words weren't going to be used with kindergartners, first graders, preschoolers. It was going to be done age appropriately. It was to, when I look at it, I see acceptance. And, and you know, students, there are students in classrooms that have two mothers and two fathers. That, that's happening. Classmates probably know that. And, um, and so to not acknowledge that is... It's, it's pushing people, it's the opposite of acceptance. It's pushing people to the corner where, well, we're going to do a Mother's Day card and you only get one card because everybody only has one mother. I, you know, it's, it's, it's not my job as a teacher. It's not my job as a school m- board member to, to decide what is right for a family. But on the other side of it, we have to accept everybody that walks through our doors And we're seeing the data when we don't accept and validate students. They don't feel like they belong. And if they don't feel like they belong, they're not going to learn. And um, our job is to teach them. And so I certainly understand parents being upset by the wording. And I I sometimes look and think, boy, really missed that one, you know, and um, should have should have probably looked at that more from a parent lens than a former teacher and school board member lens. But it again, it went through our curriculum instruction committee with three board members. It went to the full board. We didn't try to hide it. All those um, 
you know, the documents were accessible to the public through the website, uh, board docs. And, um, so, and, and we didn't discuss specifically some of the wording, but we did discuss some of the new curriculum in, um, in our curriculum instruction meeting. When it went to cons consent agenda, you know, try, we try as uh, the three members that are on the CNI curriculum instruction committee to inform the other board members. And sometimes I feel like we don't get it right. Like what we think is going to be, you know, of interest to them or, or concerning, sometimes we miss the mark. So when they were cutting some courses, um, you know, that upset some um, board members of several months ago and we had to kind of go back and say, okay, here's what's what with that. Um, and so, but no, again, no, no red flags went up for us. And, and so that was probably a little clueless on our part. Um, I wish that people had come and talked to us, had emailed us, had called before splashing it on social media and, and upsetting people. Because now we saw with that original uh, Family Life Advisory Committee meeting that went very south to the next board meeting where it was much more controlled. Um, you know, one person did have to leave um, because they were shouting at another person, but that was it. Everybody else pretty much remained control to when we got to our next curriculum instruction meeting that we had in the, the late afternoon with um, Dr. Kappa giving a presentation of the process and then us sitting there willing to listen to anybody that wanted to talk. The tone of that meeting was very calm and civil and nothing like the, the original meeting where people were upset. So I, a little bit of that is on us um, to make sure that we're kind of being a little more proactive. But now that people understand that we weren't trying to, I hope they understand that we weren't trying to hide anything and that we just were kind of doing business as usual with something that for a lot of people was not business as usual and uh, tried to make up for it. So we were a little reactive and uh, we, we need to do better. Again, it goes to communication. Mm -hmm. So just going off that, I kind of want to jump ahead to something else that I was going to ask about later, which is um, just this whole issue you've been touching on of transparency and communication. Um, that was something that was identified by the search firm that um, helped find Dr. Dyson. Um, they did this pretty sweeping survey of community members, teachers, parents, and um, transparency and communication from the district seemed to be uh, a theme that kind of emerged from that data uh, in terms of something that respondents thought FCPS and the board could do better at. So I'm wondering if you were reelected, how you would plan to address that issue and, and how you might work to rebuild trust with some people in the community who, who might have lost it. Yeah, that's a, another good question. I think we're already trying to address that. Um, again, our public affairs department is is really working hard to be on top of things, and I think they've they've done a great job. Um, you know, in the last few months, a uh, little stability there helps. And um, and then uh, as far as board members, um, you know, just just kind of checking in ourselves. Um, a small thing. Recently, all the websites changed for the schools. I didn't realize that until we got an email from a parent complaining because now when you go to the school websites and you click on um, staff list, it used to be that then you cl clicked on a teacher's name, you would be directed immediately to email that teacher. 
And now there are no links. Now they're going to fix that because they've heard. And so they're responding to what they're hearing. A number of people were like, but I liked that. It made it easy to, you know, contact a teacher. And um, so they're going to fix that. But they took that out. And so just, just listening to the public on what works for them. Um, sometimes we overdo it and then people get inundated and then they stop listening. So you have to communicate with people in the way they want to be communicated. I, you know, for years did scouts, um, PTA, uh, and being a teacher. And I learned some things about like, let's bullet information. You know, don't give people great gobs of paragraphs to read through, no offense to the newspaper. We're, we're a headline society, right? And so people are busy. They want it short, sweet, and easily digestible. And so, you know, bullets, for instance, are good. But when people start getting too many emails from their child's school and then from the system and they feel inundated, they stop reading. So we have to meet people where they're at, and I think, um, you know, let's find out. Let's ask them what's working. Um, we're doing better with uh, after the September 1st flooding. One of the breakdowns there was um, communicating with the families that they were going to have to come get their students. So they realized one of, I, and I might be off on this one, but I believe one of the means of communication um, could only take up to like 50 characters or something like that. So they've worked on that. After the after-incident report pointed out some ways to improve communication for that. Um, you know, people, they just want to know what's going on with my kid. Uh, is my child safe? And especially after we've had incidents, um, you know, very sad incidents in other parts of the country, people want to know their child is safe and they have every right to know that. Uh, what are some of the things that you have done in these past four years as a board member that you're most proud of or that you think um, have made the most impact? Wow. You know, COVID, uh, again, I, I look at this whole thing of um, we were moving right along and then boom, COVID. I mean, we'd only been in a little more than um, a year when COVID hit. So about half of the the whole four-year term or more was taken up with, with COVID things. Um, and I'm not going to put pride on that. That was uh, That was just survival mode and trying to do what was best, what the experts were telling us, and, and the best for the most students. I am, however, proud that we did not lose a student or teacher to COVID where, where other systems, they were dying. We did not. And so I take comfort in that. I sleep well at night. Um, I'm proud that we're doing a lot to help with the learning recovery some of that, of course, is mandated, but I, I'm, it's all hands on deck, and I'm really proud of our staff just for how hard they're working. That's not me, of course, but um, getting salaries up, and um, that's, that's got to happen. And so I you know, take pride in being part of that. I, you know, Brad Young at one meeting was upping what we were putting in the salary scale, and I said, I can't vote for that because I want to up it even more, and he matched, you know, we met in the middle and our whole board uh, unanimously uh, voted to to give the 2% above what we'd already had in there. So um, I take credit for that. I'm a very much behind the scenes person. And so a lot of what I do is not meant to attract attention. I don't want to detract or deter 
the schools from doing their job. But when people contact me and tell me something's going on, I quietly go to the superintendent. And um, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, take pride in some of the things that I've done behind the scenes, but not going to talk about those publicly because those were in confidence. And that is how I do a lot of my work. Um, again, I go back to, I want things to run smoothly in the school. I don't want the teachers to have to deal with a lot of distraction because their job is there to do for their students. And let's get all of everything else, the noise out of the way so they can do their job. Okay. Well, one more, um, sort of policy specific question before we sort of start to wrap up here, but I'm curious what you think about this conversation around uh, staff diversity. So we have a county and a, a school system that has gotten a lot more racially and ethnically diverse in the last 10 or 15 years. And the teaching staff has remained pretty much pretty much the same. And that's something that the, the district has acknowledged. They've acknowledged that the, the student demographics do not match the staff demographics. Um, there's a very, very wide gap there. So there's been some talk of hiring a an HR professional specifically focused on minority recruitment. Uh, there have been some talks about um, support groups for new minority hires. I'm wondering which of these ideas you support or any other ideas you might have, or um, just if you think this is an important an important issue to be talking about, sort of trying to get the staff to eventually more closely mirror the student body. I feel like we're back four years ago or 10 years ago or, you know, this has been an issue for Frederick County and everywhere for a long time. Yes, it's important. Research so shows us that. And, um, you know, I, I don't have any specific studies, but every research that I've ever seen about it says, yes, you kids need to see themselves. You know, I was at one school where we actually at Twin Ridge, we, for two years, um, in the early 2000s, we had an all-boys class in fourth and fifth grade. And our whole school did um, in-servicing on gender studies and, and how to work best with boys and girls. And one of the things you found was, you know, what worked for the boys also worked for the girls. Give them choice, give them movement, build relationships. So that was stuff that was all good for students. But in that training, I learned um, ethnicity trumps gender. And so when kids can read about people that look like them, and even better, when they can see somebody that looks like them, it starts to open a whole world of possibilities that they might never have thought of. And it broadens everybody's horizons just to live in a more diverse society. They move to any city, they're going to be living in a more diverse society. Frederick County is becoming more diverse. If they want to stay here and work well and live well, you know, you have to learn to get along with other people, and it makes your life more interesting. So, yes, it's important. So how do we do that? Um, again, four years ago, I started talking about they, people need supports in the community. Why should they move to Frederick County? Getting our salaries up is very important. I think seven out of ten teachers say salary, more pay is an important um, aspect. But you've got to come to a place where you feel comfortable, where you want to live. This is where we need to work with the county government. A lot of people can't afford to live in this county. If they work here, they live in Washington or Pennsylvania or West Virginia. 
Um, if they live here, they work in another county that pays more. So what can we do to make sure that they can actually live and work here? And that's where livable housing, affordable housing, livable Frederick, um, working with the local government and, and developers is important so that people can do that. And then having a support system around them. Um, I think we do a great job. Megley is phenomenal with um, the early um, induction of teachers and training and, and keeping them connected. Uh, CFCTA is doing some things socially for some of the minority teachers, and I, that's, that's needed. Um, and then the biggest problem is teacher shortage in general, and, and so there aren't even teachers to hire, never mind teachers uh, of color, of minority teachers, of a more diverse staff. So we have to start making teaching, um, you know, Blueprint is trying to get that where it's by pay and um, more respected. And so that that's a start that it will get into kids' heads that, oh, I, this is something I might want to do. It's a hard job. People, a lot of times as a teacher, you get used to, well, you only work nine months a year. You only work six hours a day, whatever. You know, I got used to that, and you just kind of put it aside. And so, well, they just don't know. Um, but once somebody's in the job and they find out how tough it is, you know, we're losing a lot of teachers. Um, within five years, that was happening. COVID's made that worse. So we got to... Workload is another issue. There's there's a lot of issues, but getting teacher um, to be more teacher the profession to be more respected that happens with pay and uh, and then make them feel like they have uh, supports. All right. Well, as we get ready to sign off here, I just want to ask you um, basically why you think you deserve voters' trust this year and especially in, the, in this really crowded field. So there's 15 other candidates. And I am just curious to hear you talk about why you think, um, what you think about your record or your background or your experience kind of might make you stick out among that crowded field. And, and what, like I said, why you think voters should place their trust in you this summer. Well, again, thank you for that question, because that is what the voters need to ask themselves. 16 people running for four positions, July 19th primary, terrible times. So why me? Um, the Board of Education position is rarely what people think it is when they're going into it. You go to your um, training after you're um, elected. Maryland Association of Boards of Ed, MABE, uh, does a two-day training for all new board members. Um, Jay and I went, Jay Mason and I went in December of 2018. And basically the first thing they tell you is forget all your campaign promises because you really can't do most of those things. So, you know, you learn the board is the what, the superintendent is the how. I use the example of if the board decided to do some crazy thing like we want students to go to the moon, um, something outlandish like that, then it's the superintendent's job to either figure out how to do that or to tell us why it can't happen. And so a lot of times people run for the board and they want to get into the how you're going to do it, the operational side. And that is for the superintendent and her, in this case, her staff, um, to figure out. That's not the board's position. You know, certainly you can enter into dialogue, you can give some ideas, but ultimately if you're going to do the superintendent's job, you can't evaluate the superintendent on whether he or she is doing the job you hired them for. So it's it's a lot of retraining. Well, I've had four years to know what my boundaries as a board member are. 
Um, I've learned a lot about how to be effective. I've developed relationships with staff members. And again, I still have those connections in the schools. I make a lot of visits to schools. I learn something every visit I go to. I love the school system. I am not out to make major changes. I'm out to improve on what we need to improve on and keep doing what we're doing great. And so much out there is great. I went to all 10 graduations last week. And I'm just so proud of our students. Even if they don't know what they're doing when they come out, they'll figure it out. And they're just a great bunch of kids, and we've got to do our best for them. So I think I've got the experience now. That's, that's been the you know, uh, main purpose of my life since I was a senior in high school. I've worked with students, um, even though I didn't like school myself. And, and that probably gives me that perspective of what can you do to make school more likable for kids, because it's certainly not for everybody. Um, but I always keep the kids, um, every child, every student in mind, and what we can do to make their lives better. All right, Karen Yoho, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 